0: Welcome to the Money Advantage podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive.
1: Welcome back to the Money Advantage podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner, and we are going to be diving into a very special book today. We're going to be talking about Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. And this is something um, near and dear to both of our hearts. And we're going to be able to really just unpack what is in this profound book and be able to help you understand what is being discussed, what's being explained. You could kind of almost think of this as a book study if you haven't read the book, but chances are you've probably read the book if you're listening to this episode And looking just for some commentary some explanation some understanding around this book that really helps us to be informed about how to practice and use in our own lives infinite banking this process of using specially designed whole life insurance for the purpose of improving our lives so um, bruce before i jump in and give any context we're going to talk about the the main point of the book then we're going to really dive in just to the very first piece the introduction today But let's hear from you, um, just on your perspective, when I shared that we're going to be covering this series, um, you just shared with me that you've been looking forward to doing this for a really long time. So can you share about that?
2: Yeah, so um, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Um, I was always in awe uh, with Nelson, how he came across with just common sense ideas, and uh, very thankful that... He put um, his biggest common sense idea um, into a book form uh, that he was inspired to do, and it was basically the only reason he did it was to help people, and 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 in some sense to help the to help the country from a financial literacy situation. And um, you know, we we talked to a lot of people. <clears throat> And a lot of people think that becoming your own banker or uh, the infinite banking concept or privatized banking or uh, be your own bank or whatever people want to call it, because a lot of people rebranded what Nelson did for a variety of reasons, both some good, some bad. Um, but really, it is, a, it is a simple system of taking what you should be doing in general and that is not spending all of your money and then where you should actually store it and actually improving on the banking system because as nelson talked and we're going to talk about this is what is a banking system and why is it needed and so on and so forth and so nelson just felt like he needed to put this down and we're going to talk about what inspired him and what act happened in his life that actually caused this to happen. And and Rachel, the last thing before we get into this is that, you know, I've been having some great conversations with people that have been listening to podcasts. And the thing that the thing that keeps coming across, and we want to continue this and tell them that we're going to continue this, is they love the educational perspective that you and I bring to this topic, because. So many people are coming to this topic in a sensationalism type situation, and once again, I'm not here to judge, but we we are not trying to be the end all for every everybody. We're trying to target the people that are that have good habits and they really want to understand the educational piece of what it means in your life to actually control the banking function. And we're not t- saying that every financial um, vehicle or industry is bad and only life insurance is the only thing you should be doing, but we do believe it should be a foundational part in your life. And as we go through this book, I'm gonna, I think people will see why.
1: I'm really excited for this conversation because <clears throat> I guess my big picture perspective, and I know Bruce, you've read it way more times than I have. I've probably read it maybe four times or so. I'm rereading again as we're preparing for this podcast. I kind of think of the book, Becoming Your Own Banker, as the Bible of infinite banking in a way. I mean, it's the, the beginning, the initial um, starting point where this idea was written down. And when I really look at it, it's not from the perspective of someone saying, hey, here's this amazing product. Let me tell you all the features and all the benefits and all of the way that this product works. It's not about the product, which I think some people might maybe even be a little disappointed that it's not more about the product. It really starts from this perspective of what is the system of money in your life which you could think of as microeconomics. This is your personal economy. What's happening in that financial system of your life? And how is it related to the bigger financial system of the entire world, the macroeconomic perspective? And really, it was an ordinary guy who was a businessman who happened to discover this tool that he had access to that he didn't realize. He didn't come into this with an agenda of saying, I'm going to sell products. I'm going to help people buy this product. He really said, my goodness, I'm an ordinary guy with a big problem on my hands. Here's a solution I discovered by thinking differently. And he even credits being on his knees in prayer and getting an answer from God saying, hey, you have access to this right in front of you. And then he said, wow, if, if this is something that I didn't see, but was accessible to me, how many more people? also have access to the same thing that they don't see that I just need to help them see. And I love that he was an ordinary guy that really now we look back on as being a hero, almost an inventor. Um, I also think of inventors as people who look at the certain the circumstances. They're looking at a problem, but they're looking differently than most people would. That's how they come up with a new solution to something that other people just didn't see. And by looking differently he was able to find the solution and then share it with us. So Bruce, there's so much that we can unpack. Do you want to share anything about what the main point of becoming your own banker is before we kind of dive into the start?
2: Well, I think the main point of becoming your own banker is that Nelson discovered through his problem that he'll have, which we'll discuss in a second, that your need for finance in your life is, is way more important than your need for protection because we're we're financing things every day. And Nelson's definition, I want everybody to listen to this. Nelson's definition of financing means that if you pay for things in cash, you're also financing that because you're giving up the ability to earn interest on that money. So you're either paying interest by um, paying it to an institution, or you're giving up the ability to earn interest, which is the same thing as paying interest. So he, that way of thinking, then people that are, that are saying, well, I just pay for cash for everything. That's the greatest way to do things. They don't realize that they are also giving up the ability to earn something. In the most cases, we call it interest. It could be dividends. Um, it could be appreciation from other, um, Financial products, but you're giving up something. And I think that is the main underlying thing in the book is about how you're always financing something.
1: Let's, we're definitely going to be circling back to that idea a lot through, um, <clears throat> through this series. So today, we're really, we could call this part one of becoming your own banker. Um, I should probably be watching the chat as well. So if you are listening live, please jump in, please ask your questions, please share if you've read Nelson Nash's book. Um, We'd love to hear where your experience is with infinite banking. Now, what I would like to um, really start from is in this book, Becoming Your Own Banker, it almost to me seems counterintuitive to start from becoming your own banker. Because that title presupposes that banking is important and that somehow you should desire to take over that banking function. There's some kind of a reason, uh, a motivation, something that would benefit you to take over some of this banking capability in your own life. And that's what you were alluding to when you said the need for finance is more important than the need for protection. But I mean, besides being a cool title, becoming your own banker, I mean, most people, unless they're familiar with infinite banking, aren't really probably walking around saying, hey, I'd like to be my own banker. That's not necessarily the first thing that you would think of as the the perceived need that most people have. Yet, it's extremely important. And here is why. So he starts off the book by recognizing that money lies in the hands of a select few because they think differently about money. And he said, basically, if you redistributed all the wealth in the world and made everyone get an equal amount, that within, he says, a timeframe of about 10 years, he said, probably again, what would happen within 10 years is again, 97% of all the money would be under the control of 3% of the people. So he's starting from this idea of recognizing people, some, some people do things differently, which allows them to be in more control, to have money flow into their control, and who benefit tremendously from this way of, of thinking differently. So that's really where the context of the book starts. And then he starts unpacking this idea that you have money, and it flows... Through your hands, you make this money, you spend it, you can save it, you can give it, you can invest it. It, It's going through your hands. And yet, we just think in that isolated silo of what's happening in our own personal financial life. And he just said, let's look bigger, let's expand that perspective and recognize that all the money in the world is part of a system and it is all flowing, it's going from somewhere to somewhere else. And we're all participating in a small degree in that flow of money. But where is it coming from before it's in our hands? And where's it going after it's in our hands? And what he says is profound. Money is ultimately going into the control of the banking institutions. If you think about it, I purchase a pair of shoes. I have the money. I got it from my job or my business. I earned that income somehow. I have that money. I'm going to purchase a pair of shoes. I'm going to pay that to the store owner. They now own that money, but they're going to do something with it. They're not just going to hold it in the cash register or endlessly until they have to pay their bills. They're going to hold it and store it somewhere. Oh, by the way, I also was storing my money somewhere from the time that I made that money to the time that I paid it to purchase that pair of shoes. And so if we recognize that there's a system happening, like the water in the ecosystem of our universe, like the blood that flows through our body, it's moving. And what is that movement of money? That is the clue then to understanding who controls money and who thinks differently so that they can participate in that system of moving money in a way that gains control. <clears throat> so, Bruce, as we're kind of talking about that that starting point of the book, that to me was just really, really fascinating. A, a very interesting and intriguing place to start. Again, again, I think he could have started by saying, all right, here's what a whole life insurance policy is here's how it works. Here's all the parts of it. Here's how you design it properly. And here's how what it helps you do in your life. But he didn't start there. He just started with money is moving and it goes in the control of some people. And how do we participate in that? And banking is tremendously related. Um, Bruce, we could go anywhere with this, but I know that you have a lot of history. Um, you, you know a lot of history and it might even be helpful to kind of unpack some of the banking history um, and why banking is such a crucial function in society?
2: Well, I think, um, first of all, all you have to do if you, there's something I think we talked about on the podcast before that was kind of discovered in the 60s and 70s called the Beetle effect. And the Beetle effect was after the Volkswagen Beetle that was coming into the United States. And people started realizing that when they bought a uh, Volkswagen Beetle they would see a whole bunch more of them on the road, even though they were already on the road, but they hadn't owned one before. Mm -hmm. And you still see that today. I see it with my own car. You know, I have a certain brand of car and I'll be driving down the road. And all of a sudden, um, because I bought this new car, now I see a whole bunch of those cars. I had no idea that they were even uh, that many on the road. Well, the same thing happens with banks when you start to actually start to pay attention to how many banks there are in your community. And not only are they on uh, a lot of corners, uh, a lot of times they're on every corner. And then I also participate in the, uh, some programs here in St. Louis, because we have one of the, the Federal Reserve Banks here in St. Louis, and they put on public forums that you can attend And when I go to that, uh, particularly public forum, the opulence of that particular bank is just unbelievably, um, you can tell it's unbelievably profitable Mm. um, because, you know, you have marble lined hallways, uh, 20 feet up, chandeliers, uh, the woodwork is is unbelievable. So they're they're making a lot of money.
1: Um, You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that they're on so many corners. They also usually have their name on the tallest buildings of any city. And then you're talking about opulence. I mean, yes. When's the last time that you went into a bank that looked like it was, you know, falling apart and breaking down. it's not usually, I mean, maybe there are some banks like that, but usually there's a lot of um, yes, opulence or display of that even in the bank.
2: And when, and when money, when you talk about the history of banks, you know, when money was uh, first established, you uh, Thousands of years ago, there was different exchanges, and it could be simply it could be simply uh, tangible objects like clamshells. It could be grain and bartering systems, and then eventually there was a more of a systematic uh, way of doing this by uh, minting coins out of precious metals. And even before that, it wasn't even precious metals; it was tin and copper and uh, some of the things we see now, but when suddenly when gold and silver became a very precious metal and throughout the globe, um, it, it started being accepted as being a, a store of value because that's all what money is, a store of value. Then people did not feel safe to actually keep a lot of that with their person. And so through ingenuity and free market, people started saying, well, I'm gonna build a stronger uh, place And you can actually bring it to us and we'll safeguard it. And we will actually do that for a fee for doing that. Well, so then banks were developed. And then they started realizing that the bank, the banks did, they started realizing that we have a lot of this here, precious gold and silver in our banks, and people are just storing it here. Why don't we lend some of it out? Because people aren't going to come and get it all at one time, and we can charge interest to do that. And so not only are we charging them to store it here, but we're also charging them interest to do that. Well, then over the course of time, then, they realized that they were making a lot of money on charging interest, much more than they were making on charging them the interest to, uh, just to store it there, the charge to store it. So they flipped it and wanted more money in their bank and said, we will actually pay you to bring the money or the gold and silver to our bank because we can make much more on the way out of here. And that's how the banking history started um, from out of necessity because people could not protect their own money. Nelson, and on on a side note here, Nelson, in his presentations, which he used to do a two day presentation on how this concept worked and how banks work and how money works in general, he used to get irritated because the regulators would, would say that you can't call an insurance company a bank. And he says, We're not calling the insurance company the bank. We're, we're saying it's taking over the banking function. And he gave examples as like uh, a bank is just a word. So, like, you can actually stand on a river bank, mm-hmm. but nobody is nobody is um, thinking that they're actually at an actual bank when they're standing on a river bank. And Nelson was a pilot. And when you turn a plane, you bank a plane. He goes, nobody when I turn a plane thinks I'm an actual bank. So he would get irritated at these insurance companies that would say, you can't say that the insurance company is a bank. And he and he says, I'm not saying the insurance company is a bank. I'm saying you can actually uh, use an insurance company to perform the same things, at, uh, the banking functions as a bank. So that was kind of a little sidebar, how Nelson used to get irritated over uh, how the industry, and, and that's a theme in the book too, how Nelson had gotten uh, irritated at the industry, the insurance industry, not actually being creative thinkers either.
1: Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting is that if you start from the perspective of recognizing money's always flowing, and it's often flowing into the hands and control of the banking industry, we're not saying a particular bank, but the banking industry in general, money is going, it's gonna be held in an account somewhere, You think about your accounts you hold your money probably in a bank you're having your transactions come out either automatically or through your debit card or through your credit card and then paint it off through your bank but you are having your money flow through a bank typically then the bank is in a position of control not only do they have the capital they now are able to as you were mentioning loan out the capital so they earn interest on what they're loaning out. They're they're setting up loans and structuring loans in a way that they're going to get paid back. They only provide loans to people that they see as um, solvent or, and credit worthy enough that are going to repay their loans. And if they don't think that person's going to repay, they're either not going to extend the loan or they're going to charge a much higher interest rate or demand it be paid back quicker. And if you look at The bank then, by being in control of capital, by holding capital, they have the ability to earn interest, to earn arbitrage. They're earning way more on their loans that they're making than they're paying in interest for people to hold and deposit their money at that bank. And they're in a position where they're earning cash flow, they're earning interest, they're in a position of control. They make the decisions about who they're going to Um, take risk on or not take risk, and they really minimize their risk by doing loan applications and checking credit worthiness. So they they, they have the upper hand really is what's happening because they are in a position of controlling the capital. And so then what we can say is, well, if the banking industry in general is controlling capital, wealth is flowing generally to people who are thinking differently, this 3%. Well, how can we think like the bank? How can we be the bank? How can we do the function of the bank to benefit in that way? How can we control capital, hold capital, earn interest, take less risk, decide who we're going to make loans to, have the money come back into our hands, earn cash flow, be in a position of being able to create leverage and arbitrage. We can think like the bank by controlling capital. And so, I mean, ultimately, Where this whole story ends up is that we have the ability to be the banker and control capital and benefit from it. And the only limit on our ability to benefit is how much we have capitalized our banking system with in the first place. And that was the realization that was so profound that Nelson had. He realized, oh my goodness, I have this capability to be the banker in my own life. And the only limit is how much I've paid it yeah that's so,
2: a he, he, he often said there's no such thing as having too much money in a bank and I think I mentioned this a couple podcasts ago is people are afraid to actually capitalize their bank they think they always have to just get it out there and get it working and get it working and I'm not saying that velocity of money is not important I mean you need to actually get your money working for you and that Nelson actually talks about this in his book, but he also talks about deploying it and saving first and having plenty of money. When you have plenty of money, it takes the pressure off of you so that you don't have to feel like you have to make a big move on something and you and you don't make rash decisions. I mentioned this a couple podcasts ago because there's a lot of money in the system right now. And one of the, when I say the system, I'm talking about the, the worldwide system, I'm talking about the United States, I'm talking about our local economy, so on and so forth, because there was easy access to cash. And plus, uh, gov- the government printed a lot of money to do uh, different projects for. Well, whenever that happens, what, what ends up happening is people are sitting on money and they think, oh, I've got to do something for it. Whenever you're sitting on a lot of cash, you have a tendency to say, well, it it's not It's not that bad. I can pay more for that because I have a lot of cash. and so people then make decisions that they would not normally make if they didn't have as much cash. This is what causes inflation because if i've I've done this experiment in in front of uh, seminars that i've I've talked about, actually with simple candy bars, and I ask people to write ten dollars on a sheet of paper and I pull out a candy bar and I say how much will you pay for this candy bar? And somebody else say a dollar, and somebody else will say two dollars, and then it kind of gets silent. And then I say, Okay, you bought it for two dollars. And then I say, Okay, now everybody, write down now. You're gonna double your money. Here's you now you have twenty dollars, and I pull out the exact same candy bar and I ask the question again. Now how much? Well, now all of a sudden somebody says five dollars, and I ask them why. Well, they have more money, they they simply have more money, so having more money. Causes price inflation. So, but what, what ends up happening then is you have price inflation of an asset that you bought because money in the system, and then the Federal Reserve sucks the money out of the system by, rising, by raising interest rates. And then all of a sudden, you're stuck with an asset that is now depreciating in value. And this is what is happening to these. Uh, this is not an endorsement. This is not a recommendation. This is a disclosure. I'm not saying you should do this, but this is what happened. What was happening with private equity companies right now that are flush with cash. They're buying businesses that they shouldn't be buying just because they're trying to get a rate of return. There, uh, these SPACs, the special ass- asset groups that are uh, pulling their money with an investor just to go out and they don't even know what they're going to buy. They just pull, they're pulling their money and say, go out and buy something. And these investors are trying to get rates of return. So whenever you have money in the system, people are going to make rash decisions. So what I'm seeing now is in the infinite banking community is people are espousing, get the money in there and then get it right back out and get get to work. Well, that is not what Nelson endorsed. Nelson said, save, save, save first, capitalize and then opportunities will find your money eventually so we need to think about capitalizing first and being as due diligent as banks are when they're lending out the money so you should be due diligence and and make sure that you are not just taking that money and and reinvesting it somewhere without really thinking about what
0: you're doing
1: it's absolutely true i think <clears throat> when i stop and just think through what are the true benefits of being the banker, being in a position of control. It's not um it's not necessarily, well, just that I'm gonna invest more. What's happening is I now have a position of control. I have capital, so I have control. That's benefit A, I would say. That's the top benefit. And because I have control, I also have access to capital. That doesn't mean I have to use it or deploy it right away, but I have access And then a third benefit is that I have the ability to seize the right opportunities. And that's what you're talking about with using due diligence and executing your due diligence well so that you're making the right investment decisions because you have control, because you have access, now you have access to opportunity. And those are tremendous benefits that you get by becoming the banker and storing capital. So I mean ultimately Nelson was saying banking is the most important business in the world. It's fascinating to think about that. Not that we should all go start a, you know, a new bank of whatever your last name is, Bank of Marshall, Bank of Bruce Wayneer. <laughs> but we need to recognize the value of banking and see how it can benefit our lives by building our own private banking system, not necessarily a commercial bank. So Then um, I think one of the main points that he makes in this very first section of the book as well is that becoming your own banker is about creating your own banking system so you can control 100% of your needs. So that really comes down to, um, he says at the end of this section on, on part one here, the banking business is somewhat like that, like oceans, like the water that rains down, fills up the oceans and evaporates and then goes back up into clouds and cycles back through. So it's like the water in our ecosystem. Money is like that money flows from the pool through our hands to meet our needs. But somewhere in the process, it all ends up back in the banking system. It's a matter of how much of the banking function do you control as it relates to your needs. This book is about how to create your own banking system so you can control 100% of your needs by becoming your own banker. And again, that's just back to financial principles. Again, this idea of how do I save first? How do I build up this pool of capital? How do I store it well? How do I have that access to it so that I can use it for opportunities? But just holding the capital and being in a position of control is the starting point of being your own banker. Bruce, Do you want to go ahead and share the circumstance that allowed Nelson to recognize this? Let's
2: give. Let's just start with a little background. So, Nelson was a forester by education. He studied forestry at the University of of Georgia, and um, so foresters, as he said on many occasions when I was around him, they have to think long term because an um, an old growth forest might be uh take 50 to 70 years to to grow and you probably heard us say this before he also used to say you know the best time to to plant a tree was 70 years ago but the second best time to plant a tree is today and uh this is when people and I had I just had this with a client yesterday he's 52 years old he goes I wish I would have known about this a long time ago and so I just reminded him well let's not say that you know, ten years from now, let's get let's get this tree planted. And so Nelson um, was a, a forester, and he started doing this. And he actually worked as a consultant for the forestry industry for about ten years. And then he got into the life insurance business. And when he got into the life insurance business, he he did well. But he he started to notice that even people in the life insurance um, home offices. They didn't really understand how the industry worked, and that kind of frustrated him. And then he started getting into real estate, and I think this is really uh, pertinent information right now because so many people are looking into real estate because of Rob, Robert Kiyosaki and and the explosion of these so-called experts. And, and Nelson used to used to say that too. It's you know, real estate's great because timber was, you know, he was working on. It's kind of a real estate. It's an asset. But it's also grown on real estate, and he started buying different real estate, and he did it on with leverage. In other words, he would borrow from the bank. And, and of course, he had to pay interest, but that was fine mm-hmm. because he was making money on these pieces of real estate, and it was all about leverage, you know, a little bit of money that he would put down, and then they would lend him a, a big um, part, and that's the leverage part. You're leveraging up. And then what happened you know, this was going through the '70s, and then towards the end of the '70s, we had we had this massive inflation, which is analogous to what we're, what's happening right now when we're doing this podcast in, in late 2022. Um, we're, they started having inflation, and they're raising interest rates. and the Ronald Reagan administration started raising interest rates, And he had a commercial property that was. Um, prime plus, I think, one and a half points at the time.
1: Yeah.
2: It yeah. wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. I think it was like 8% plus one and a half. So it was nine and a half percent. That sounds like a lot now, but it wasn't really a lot back then.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: CDs were actually paying, you know, 12% back then. And then, but then it, it just kept going up and up and up and it got to about 21 and percent. So now you add another one and a half percent on that. Uh, and it was at 23%. So he was paying like $67,500 uh, a year for this interest on this commercial property. On
1: oh, a $500,000 commercial
2: property. $500, yeah, loan in the early 80s. And it was just, he didn't know what he, he was going to do about it. And he kept, like you mentioned earlier, he kept he kept praying and praying and praying that something would come to him. And because he had capitalized insurance policies for the last 30 35 years and he put a lot of money into it. He realized that the answer laid in his ability to borrow, which was contractually obligated against his his um, cash value in the life insurance policies. And he borrowed, I still remember he said, you know, he actually walked down to the insurance and they agency at that time and they actually wrote him a check. You can't do that nowadays. You can't we'll just walk in there, but you walk in, they wrote him a check. He actually paid paid off the loan, and then he started paying a lower amount because the interest was only 8% at the insurance company. And so he paid the 8% interest now back to pay off the loan at the insurance company. And that's where the concept was developed.
1: It's so crazy and fascinating. He mentions a few other <clears throat> really um, sad and scary life circumstances around the same time that so not only is the financial um, strain and squeeze happening where interest rates are just spiraling out of control, then at the same time, um, they their home was burglarized. They mm-hmm. had silver stored in the home and they had robbers come in and make a disaster of the house.
2: Oh, Rachel, if I could interrupt. The, yeah. I, I think I might have mentioned this before, but I was actually a senior in high school and in the time period he's talking about, nineteen eighty um, yeah. was the start of my senior year. Nineteen eighty-one was my senior year, and you know, every—I don't know if this is the way it is across the country, but you know, you get a senior class ring, and they were gold. But gold spiked so high that year that I mean, my family could not afford to buy the senior class ring. Oh. I remember this vividly because of that, and then my grandfather. Actually, was was telling us he was buying silver because silver went to fifty dollars an ounce from I believe about eleven dollars in a short period of time, and so I remember that being very very vivid. Also, so those two time periods caused then people to start stealing gold and silver, and that's and that's the uh, um, the precursor to the story you're about to tell about Nelson.
1: Yeah. So at that time, he said gold went up to 800 per ounce. I don't know what it was right before that, but yeah, it was November 1980. Um, and so as interest rates are going up, price of gold and silver is going up, their home gets burglarized. And then- they stole he, the silver out of their house. Yes, they did. And he actually mentioned that it was, it was ransacked to the point that he was really glad his wife is not the one who cleaned up the mess. He said- It was a blessing that he was or his wife probably would have never felt comfortable in the house again. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine and I don't want to have to imagine that. But so that happens right when he's got this financial squeeze happening with interest rates going up. And then his 52 year old brother died of a heart attack. Uh, And then there is a second granddaughter born in their family. They find out at five months old um, she has or five weeks later, they discovered the baby had cancer. So he's got. Financial strain, then he's got their house is burglarized, then he's got his brother passing away early with heart problems. A grandbaby in the family now has cancer, and she's now cured, thankfully. But um, all of that happening in uh, just a really bad circumstance. I mean, it was kind of like when everything is going wrong all at once for him. And so he's not just in a financial bind where he's saying, oh, interest rates are going up. This is really hard. Just the financial piece maybe would have possibly not even had him finding the solution, but he had all these compounding factors that were just feeling completely devastating and completely out of his control. And here he is looking for answers and realizing, oh my goodness, I have these life insurance policies. And at the time, I don't think he mentions how much he had in the life insurance policies, but um, he realized the answer when he was praying was you're standing in the midst of everything it takes to get out, but you don't see it because you look at things like everyone else. Yeah. And that was just this call to recognize there's a way to think differently. And yeah, I so- think that's
2: really important to reemphasize that Nelson at the time realized that he had the answer sitting in, in his insurance policies and the reason it didn't come to him sooner is because he was thinking like everybody else. Like that's just, a, I just store it in there. I don't touch it. So on and so forth. Now he also made, he also made the point and our friend uh, James Nethery talks about this also, that the problem was from the leverage, you know, people use leverage for real estate all the time. And James always says it's never a problem till it's till it is a problem. And you know that's the way real estate people think all the time. Oh, I can I can borrow myself to the hilt, and it's never going to be a problem because you know the real estate always goes up in value. The interest rates are always you know they're fixed now, so I don't have to worry about it um, because back then they weren't fixed. And although now with commercial property they're they're really not fixed either. They're usually on a balloon note of five or seven years. Maybe you could get a ten year one. You you used to, you still can occasionally get a, a fixed note on a commercial product, depending on on how um, much you put down and so on and so forth. But Nelson was over leveraged. And so it, it wasn't a problem. And I hear this from real estate people all the time. Oh, I don't have to worry about that because the appreciation is going to go up and I'll just refinance out, you know, so on and so forth. Well, if something happens like it did in 2008, and now they're talking about real estate prices, not dropping like 2008, but certainly leveling off and probably dropping in s- certain areas. Then all of a sudden, as your balloon note comes about, then this could be a problem. So as, as our friend James always says, it's never a problem till it's a problem. And then it's a problem. So people have to look at this and realize that they they need to be more in control of their financial life. And the only way you're more in control of your financial life is by saving first, capitalizing first, and then investing into something.
1: Something else that I will point out, because if you're new to the concept, you could probably be hearing us say, just make sure you have access to the lowest interest rates. and That's not what we're saying. We are saying, store your capital where you control it and where you have access to it. Now, there's another line right after um, that line in the book about um, you don't see it because you look at things like everyone else. So this is the rest of the answer. You can get to the money during these awful times at 5 to 8% from three different life insurance companies through policies that you own. So he owned the policies, but because he owned the policies, he also owned the right to access the cash value through loans. And that's the piece w- that was missing. He owned the ability to access this capital. So the only thing that limits how much you can get to is the same thing they tell you at the bank when they ask, when you ask them how big of a check you can write, well, how much you've put in. And I think that's really insightful because you want to be in a position where you have capital that you own or that you own the ability to access because it's not just that you want access to the best interest rate possible. It's that when capital is not in your control, you don't have control over what the interest rate is going to do, your access to that capital. But if you have capital you own and control, then you're in that position of being able to have that access and being able to access that money for opportunities. Bruce, is there anything that we can clarify differently on that? I just want to make sure that the message coming across wasn't. Um, no, that's a,
2: good, that's a good message. And he, makes, he made the point that Banks thrive in every interest rate environment, whether it's a low interest rate environment or a high interest rate environment. And that's why he says interest rates don't matter. Okay. Because if banks are thriving in a low interest rate environment, and actually there's an argument that banks actually thrive best in a lower interest rate environment. And our friend Todd uh, Lankford has proven that to us over the years that in a high interest rate environment, they're still thriving or they wouldn't be in business. Um, So interest rates don't matter. It's about the access to the capital and then deploying that capital properly in the form of minimizing or eliminating financing and then in the form of a properly vetted out investments.
1: Absolutely. So let's just recap here um, because we want to keep this in small chunks. We're going to be unpacking This book, as we continue on in this series on becoming your own banker, but there's a system of the flow of money. It's not random. It's not random who is in a position of control. It's not random who owns most of the capital. It's not random where the money flows and who the 3% are and how they think in order to be in control of most of the money in the world. So if it's systematic, then it's created through habits and through a process, and it's something that's repeatable, and it's scalable, and you can use it to improve your financial life when you recognize that there is a system, a flow of money at work. So in retrospect, looking back, I'm so glad he named the book Becoming Your Own Banker, because it puts that piece of intrigue that makes us question, well, there must be something about banking there must be something valuable about me acting like a banker. What is that thing? And that then opens the door for you to really think differently and control capital.
2: Yeah. And, and the last thing I'd like to, to leave our audience with today, and maybe you have some other things, but the last thing I want to make sure I leave with them is a, Einstein was, was famous for thought experiments. And so if you don't if you don't think that controlling the banking function is important in your life and you don't or maybe you just don't think about it. That's that's what Nelson talks about in his book is people don't even think. And we don't think about our thinking Then also, you know, it's like, why are we thinking this way? We have to constantly be checking in with ourselves. Let's do this thought experiment. Let's say we have a a small community of a thousand people. And we all give them the same amount of capital per person. And then we just let that community run its uh, business however they want to, whether it's a trading amongst each other, setting up a business, loaning money. We all know people um, in our community, in our set of friends, that some people are going to be able to control their own uh, destiny and they're gonna make smart decisions and that money's gonna to flow to them. And we all know friends and family and people in the community that make silly mistakes with money all the time. And that money's gonna flow out of their control. So the people that can be uh, can can get that capital in their hands to redeploy it, that is what it means to control the banking function because that money's gonna to flow towards those individuals that are going to take advantage of the situation legally and morally, frankly, because they're they're not doing it in a deceptive way. So that they are that money is going to be in a certain group of people. And that is analogous how that money gets into banks. So the banks are then controlling that process and it's flowing in and out. Some people use banks really well, some people don't use banks really well. But it's it's human nature how that money flows. And some people take advantage of the flow. Some people are not very good at taking advantage of the flow. And that's why his book, Becoming Your Own Banker, was more about personal responsibility, I believe, than actually the the product or what you're trying to accomplish.
1: I love that you shared um, that thought experiment because it made me think a little bit differently in something that I think is really helpful to share. In terms of our normal everyday life, it can be so easy have the keeping up with the Joneses perspective, that I am going to prove my worth to the world and to my friends and to everyone who sees me by what I purchase, what I own, the boat that I have, the house that I have, the cars that I drive. And I want to display and demonstrate my financial prowess by the things that I can show visibly to the world. The problem is if we are just thinking of ourselves as a spender or a consumer or a purchaser of all those nice things, we're actually in a position of having the money flow from our control to the person who sold us that item. So instead of just thinking from that external viewpoint, it's really important to think about the flow of money and how to control capital, not just how to look wealthy on the outside. So I think this all comes down to really understanding how the world works and understanding how it works. So many times we just participate in the world, we make observations, we see what's happening, but we don't really understand why it's happening. And this book is an exercise in really digging into the why. Why is is money working the way that it is? Why do some people get wealthy and others don't? Why do some people have good money habits? Why do some people have money flow into their control? And so as we continue to unpack this thought experiment of becoming your own banker, you're going to see even more of that. Bruce, I love um, <clears throat> just where you ended that and that just made me think about that last piece to share. So if you're interested in learning more about infinite banking, you have many resources available to you. First, you can just jump on the next podcast that we have. And we're going to continue to unpack this book. We typically broadcast live every week. And so you can find us back wherever you are watching this, whether that's LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, the podcast. We have the blog that comes out a little bit later. With the same episodes. And if you want to dig in deeper, we have a free guide that is at privatizedbankingsecrets.com. We have a course on infinite banking. And you can also go ahead and jump into a conversation with an advisor to say, hey, I'm interested in this concept. I don't know how to use it. I'm just getting started. Here's my situation. Here's what I'm looking at. Here's what I have. Here's my goals. Here's what my timelines are looking like. How could this work for me? And we'd be really happy to help you through that conversation. So you can do that by going over to themoneyadvantage.com and going ahead and booking a conversation with that free call with an advisor. Now, in closing, please go ahead and hit the like button wherever you're watching. We love your comments. So keep dropping those in. Jose, I I see you on Facebook saying great wisdom. Thank you. Um, So thank you for watching. And in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd.